Hi, I'm Tina Arundel. This is Prescription for Hope. It's one of the busiest emergency rooms in the nation. On average, more than 300 patients a day are treated by Metro Health's emergency department. Some are able to walk through the front door. Some are carried in through the ambulance bays around back. Look around the ED and you'll find exactly who you'd expect. Patients, concerned family members, doctors, nurses, and other staff. You'll also find Sean. Uh, my name is Sean Pash. I work for Ascent. I am the peer recovery support supervisor. And Craig. And, uh, my name is Craig Dunson. I am a peer support recovery specialist. Sean and Craig are recovering drug addicts. They work here too with a service called Ascent. It connects peer coaches to people seeking recovery. In late 2016, Metro Health's new Office of Opioid Safety and Ascent partnered to pilot a new program called Ascent ED. This venture places peer coaches directly inside the emergency room. Their goal is to meet with patients after a medical emergency and convince them, right then, to get up from their bed, climb into an Uber, and go to inpatient treatment. I sat down with Sean and Craig to find out just how this works. They started with their stories. Sean went first. Okay. Um, well, growing up, I'm uh, the middle child. I have an older brother, younger sister. We're from a broken home. My mom was alcoholic. She uh, really beat me and my brother like it was her job, honestly. And so I was introduced to alcohol and the effects it had at a very early age. Um, you'd think experiencing that. As a little kid, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, that it would deter me from ever picking up alcohol, but it didn't. At age 15, I meet a young lady, you know, she drinks a lot, and I choose to start drinking with her, and, you know, and that's how it starts. And then I start using marijuana, 17, that leads into um, other drugs so on and so forth. And over the course of almost 19 years, I uh, experienced a lot of consequences, family-wise, legal-wise. And uh, February 11, 2009, I uh, had enough. And I had asked God to remove the obsession for me to drink and drug. And for the first time in my life, I meant it. With every piece of my being, I meant it. Not 80%, not 90%, um, but 100%. Take me back to February 11th, 2009, when you decided it was enough. What clicked in you? How did you know that God was talking to you and you had to change? At that point, um, a few months prior, I was involved in a motorcycle crash where my friend and I, a friend of 20 years, I almost killed her and I almost killed myself. And then a few months later, after I get out of the hospital, I'm in a bar. Distorted thinking, why would I be in a bar after that just happened? but I'm there and I get into a bar fight. And at the end of this bar fight, I had hurt this man and I got charged with felonious assault. And the next morning I woke up, which is February 11, 2009. And at that point, God, if you don't take this from me, I'm gonna kill myself or somebody else. And mind you, this is almost 20 years of using. I was done. I was just done. During three and a half years in prison, Sean kept clean and busy. 
lifting weights, doing programs, reading the Bible, changing his thinking. I come home. Um, I went back to working for Verizon Wireless, which I used to manage a store before I went away for several years. I went back there and there was this pulling at my heart that, Sean, you know, what you've been through, it's bigger than cell phones. And then, ironically enough, my buddy calls me when that, when that nagging feeling happens, introduces me to peer support and talks to me about a scent. So, Craig, you're here and you're smiling. Got a lot to smile about. What brought you to this day? This day is a direct result. Uh, there's a saying that says, we are the sum total of our experiences. All of those things, childhood has a lot to do with, which develops us, shapes us, molds us. I grew up in a household where my mom was a ninth grade dropout. My dad, he was a, a, a jack of all trades. Uh, he did a lot of things, but he was always meticulous with his ways. Uh, the, him and my mom didn't work out, but he was always there. We still come from a dysfunctional background. Well, what do you do when dysfunction is normalcy? Started using uh, alcohol at a very early age. Mom sleep, dad sleep. Me, my, my brother and my sister, we drink the alcohol. 9, 10, 12 years old, uh, introduced to marijuana. I started using crack cocaine at 18. Well, I started snorting cocaine 17, senior year high school, smoking crack cocaine. We were just, we just thought we were just having fun. We were just doing it recreationally and, you know, you got caught on the other side. You know, you just look up one day and you don't know where it went from being fun to where it went to being really, really serious. In 1993, Craig was caught with a $20 rock of crack cocaine and got five years probation. Soon after, police approached him on a sidewalk, searched him, and found a crumb of cocaine in his pocket. And he said, I got you. And he took me to jail, of course, me violating the probation. The judge told me I was a habitual drug user and I needed to be saved from myself. And he sent me to prison for a year and a half, 18 months. November 16, 1993, going to jail, getting violated, being humiliated, walk across the street in handcuffs, going in and just feeling like, I don't belong here. What am I gonna do? Hopeless. When I got out of prison, uh, I got custody of my daughter, two years old, now I'm a single dad. I'm fresh off drugs. Of course, everybody's saying he's not gonna make it. This year, Craig will mark 25 years of sobriety. Today, Craig and Sean are where they thought they'd never be. In Metro Health's emergency department, they're among a dozen peer coaches on call 24-7. Uh, Pedro goes off, I go and I call down to the doctor, uh, NED, the resident or the uh, attending physician or the nurse or the psych nurse. They tell me what person to go see and they say that because we have to be asked in. We can't just force our way onto them. We can't just go in just because they're here for overdose or anything because sometimes people don't want to talk to us because they're not ready yet. They're not ready to talk to anybody out of shame, out of guilt, or out of, I just want to get out of here so I can go get high again. But give me the opportunity to get in front of you. That's another thing. So when they go in, the way I always look at it, give them some hope. It's never a 
learned speech. It's never a can anything. Each incident is different. What's it like in the room when you go in and they've had an overdose and they see you? And I, I just, I really want to feel that emotion. You know, I had to go in the room when my mom had passed away. I had to go in the room when people were dying. And it, it's always a very somber moment. It's always a very uncomfortable moment. For me though, I'm on a mission. I am going in there to talk to the face of death and tell it that it has to go and convince this person that their life is worth living. And I only probably got this one shot to do it. I've walked into a room and I know what hopeless feels like. I lived hopeless for a long time, helpless and hopeless. Again, like I had previously said, I thought my lot in life was to drink, drug, and die. So I walk into this room, and like Craig said, there's no inhibitions. We don't walk in there reserved. We have a job to do, to go in here and to help save this person. Um, somebody had to save me from me. And that's kind of what we do is we go in there and we try to save them and offer them that hope. But as far as the feeling in the room, I can't express. Sometimes well, there's no words to really answer your question. What does it feel like when you go in there and it, it feel, the hopeless you can, I mean, I can use those words, but that doesn't really convey what it really feels like. But when you take somebody that was opposed to treatment and you do your job mm -hmm. and then 35, 45 minutes later, an hour later, you're taking them to treatment, you might have just changed their entire life. They have just died, basically. They've been brought back to life. At that, you have a small window of opportunity to interject. I'm a recovering addict 24 years, and I remember being in, in your shoes, and I remember what it was like to feel hopeless. What do you think recovery means to you? Do you want to continue to keep using? You just died, and you had another opportunity to get it right. What do you want to do? And you creating that urgency. I just want, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want some help. When you get them there and you open up and they say, for the first time I got hope and you tell them I'm a recovering addict, I was where you are. Most times you see them break down, you see them cry because for the first time, oh my God, somebody understands me. Listen, if this is not your choice, it will not work. Is this for you? Yes, it is. We'll leave all understanding about what you thought life was about on this side of this moment. And let's begin again. And I walk with you. You go in and you speak to a peer. And I'll use an example of one of my coaches. They went in there and they were told ahead of time by the nurse that this peer didn't want to get into treatment. But the peer was willing to speak to us, you know, mm -hmm. gave verbal consent. The coach went in and she shared her lived experience and they communicated for about 20 minutes when she was done working with this peer. He wanted to get into treatment. So she walks out. She goes and makes a few phone calls. She uh, gets him into a facility. At that point, we have a corporate Uber account to where we literally call up Uber. Patient gets discharged and we Uber them to the treatment facility. We do what's called a warm handoff. So at the whole the whole process, the peer does not feel alone, does not feel like at least in my experience in recovery and treatment, you get handed a bunch of papers and you're told, here, go read that and get better. We don't do that. 
When the program started in November 2016, the goal was to get 6% of patients into treatment. As of May 2018, Sean, Craig, and other peers have met with 600 patients. More than 150 have gone into treatment. That's over 25%. And, and so now they're, they're starting to rely on us, like, where are those Ascent guys? When they see us there, they see us having the conversation and they see the interaction. But then the best part about it is to get them to willingly get up out of death seat and walk to the help. And they know if they're leaving out of there with us, they're going to get some help. Oh my God, they're not just letting them die anymore. We've been told, I've been told by a number of the nurses and doctors that I can't relate to what they're going through. You know, my job is to fix a broken bone, stitch up a cut, things they were medically trained to do, but they can't relate to what the peer is going through and they've been told to get out of the room on a number of occasions because the peer did not want to speak to them because they did not understand what they were going through. We come in that room knowing exactly how you feel because we've been there. I went and spoke to a peer that was handcuffed to a bed. I've been handcuffed to a, uh, a hospital bed. We changed the game. They don't expect to see us and they don't expect to speak to somebody that again, is where they've been. And that, that's the game changer. In both of your stories, you mentioned God. And it almost seems like to these patients in the ED, these peers, that you're angels. What do you have to say about that? That's a, that's, that's a heck of a metaphor. It uh, is. I personally, again, believe today that, you know, God had touched my heart. Uh, you're right. There's a message I carry today. I'm being utilized, I believe, by the Lord to take this message to people that the doctor cannot get across to them. The nurse cannot get across to them. I don't have the privilege to say that I'm an angel of God. Um, I think that is way up there. But I do have the privilege of saying I am a warrior for him and to do his, his bidding and his will and to help save people's lives and to carry the message of that to people that are in a hopeless, helpless situation. I mean, you can label it what you'd like. I'm just privileged to be able to do it. They tend to call people like us miracles. A miracle is something that happens that was never supposed to happen, right? That's what we are. And when somebody sees and witness what a miracle is, because I know what that feels like for you to be where you are. And here it is 24 years later, I'm telling you, long-term recovery and life without the use of drugs is possible. You can live and you can have the greatest life you've ever had. You can see other parts of the world. You can live like everybody else. Matter of fact, you can exceed that. In that moment, you know that you're trying to give them everything you got, everything that's in you, because if they live, that's that's that point of point of hope, that point of freedom right then and there, because I remember that for myself. So what happens after addicts grab the hand of Sean or Craig and get into treatment? What next? For many, the best treatment for opioid use disorder is a prescription for another opioid. Are we just substituting one drug for another? 
Technically, the answer is yes. However, we are substituting a drug that helps save a person's life for a drug that's likely to kill them. And in my mind, that's an ethically and medically appropriate decision to make. That's next time on Prescription for Hope. My name is Taylor. I am a volunteer here at Metro, and I am an ambassador for the hospital. Prescription for Hope is a production of the Metro Health System, which is working hard to become the most admired public hospital system in the nation.